0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello there, and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. A clinical social worker, parent coach, and mother of two, Carla Normberg was having a particularly grueling evening with her daughter's when she found herself Googling how to stop yelling at my kids. That night started her on a journey to figure out how to stay patient in the midst of kid chaos. The result is a new book that we're going to be talking about with Carla Nomberg herself. And in this part of the show, we're going to be talking about the program that she's put together that's going to help us learn how to manage triggers, stop parental meltdowns, and become a calmer and happier parent with, and this is important, calmer, happier kids, whether they're toddlers or teens. We're going to be talking about things like identifying your triggers. The first step step—the first step has to be to understand what sets you off, puts you on edge, and makes your buttons more sensitive and pushable by your kids. And then... The next step is to make your buttons as push-proof as possible. So we're going to talk about strategies like getting more sleep or single-tasking or accepting support, which is really, really hard. And what's even harder, not beating yourself up. I'm Armin Brock. We'll start talking about how to stop losing your stuff with your kids when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad,
1: Armin brought
0: after this.
1: From the MrDad.com radio network.
2: Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple?
1: Do you have these in a seven and a half?
2: How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight?
1: Is there a direct flight?
2: How long does the warranty last?
1: What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone?
2: Does it... In blue?
1: Does this bus stop at Elm Street?
2: We ask questions everywhere in life.
1: Is it raining out?
2: Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met
1: before? What's my account balance?
2: Yet somehow when we get to the doctor's office. Any questions?
1: Um no.
2: We clam up. Ask questions.
1: What is this test for?
2: Are there any side effects?
1: When do I get my results?
2: Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of ten questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bratt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Carla Nomberg, who's the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids: A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer. Happier parent, and just so you know, the word stuff is spelled S H blank blank, and you can figure that one out for yourself. Carla, thanks for joining us.
1: Glad to be here.
0: So that's a pretty big claim, there, isn't it? How to stop losing it with your kids? I mean, I think all of us at, at one point or other have lost it completely. Or how do you propose to do that?
1: Yeah, you're right. It is a huge claim uh, for any book, and right from the outside, I should say, I'm not promising that uh, any parent who reads this book will never lose their temper with their kids again. I mean, I wrote the book and I still lose it sometimes. But this book is really for parents who feel like their tempers have gotten out of control, that they're um, shouting or screaming or slamming doors or yelling at their kids more often than they'd like to. And they want to change that dynamic. And so what I can say is that the book will help you become a calmer, more present, more responsive, as opposed to reactive parent. Um, But I'm not promising, you know, you're going to turn into the Dolly Mama or something. (laughs) Uh, We all still (laughs) lose it with our kids sometimes, and that's okay. That's really a part of the very typical parent-child dynamic. It's when our tempers become the sort of predominant um, way of interacting with our kids, that we really want to start changing things. And that's what I talk about in the
0: book. Let's go back just a little bit. I'm curious what your take is on why it is that we lose our temper with our kids or or have these meltdowns with our kids. We don't do that generally with other adults. We don't do it with the people that we work with. Uh, We may get a little heated sometimes, but we generally are able to keep it together but we we somehow just let loose sometimes with our kids. Why do we do that?
1: This is a great question. And what I would say is that, um, first, we do it because, quite honestly, we can. You know, if you go to work and lose it with your boss, you're going to get fired or at least put on some kind of, you know, behavioral plan. Um, And if you do it with your spouse too many times, you know, they'll bring it right back at you, and eventually your relationship might start to fall apart. But with our children... You know, they'll just take it and take it because they're so desperate for a connection with their parents that um, they will stick around for it, partially because they want that connection and partially because until they get older and have the car keys, they don't have a whole lot of choice. But, you know, the other question is what's driving us to have these sort of temper tantrums, these outbursts with our children? And that's a little more complicated. I and mean, it's really a combination of, A, not taking care of ourselves. Um, You know, we parents, especially, well, really all of us, whether you're working outside the home or not, we're busy and stressed. We're maxed out by everything on our to-do list. We're flooded with information and advice and suggestions about all the ways we should be parenting better, and that's stressful. And then this constant flow of news along with social media, which is leading us to believe that every other parent is parenting better than we are, All of this raises our stress levels and anxiety. And the way I talk about it in the book is that when we don't take care of ourselves and when we're dealing with a lot of stressors, our buttons, you know, if we imagine ourselves having these buttons, uh, which I kind of talk about in terms of our uh, nervous system and our um, tendency to react to situations, our buttons become big and bright and red and glowing and super sensitive And as anybody who's ever been in an elevator with a kid knows, what does a kid do when they see a button? They push it, and they push it again, and they keep on pushing it. So when we're not taking care of ourselves and when we're overloaded, we become really sensitive to whatever our kids show up with, Mm -hmm. and then we lose it.
0: Uh, What's the process? Excuse me. We'll talk about that in in some detail here. But what, what does the process look like overall to getting some sort of control over ourselves so we don't do this quite so often?
1: So the first step is um, understanding that this is not a matter of willpower. You can't just decide to sort of white-knuckle your way through this and, you know, decide you're not going to lose your temper and then just do that. That doesn't work for pretty much anyone. So the first thing is to really accept that this is part of being a human being. This is part of being a parent, and it doesn't make you a bad parent. It's just part of the deal. From there, I work with parents around noticing what are your triggers, What are the things in your life, and they may have absolutely nothing to do with your kids, that set you off, that make you far more likely um, to lose your temper? And that can be anything from sleep deprivation, and exhaustion is a pretty common one, to dealing with a challenging family situation, especially for those of us in the sandwich generation where we're taking care of kids and elderly adults, elderly relatives. Um, It could be a situation going on at work. It could be that you're dealing with chronic pain, um, that you're stressed about finances. Any of these things uh, can really trigger us and make it far more likely that we're going to lose it when our kids come along with their fingers sticking out looking for some button to push. Once we get a handle on our triggers, you know, if you can do something about it, that's great. If you can get some space from, you know, that mom you always see in the drop-off line or the colleague at work who's driving you nuts you can get some space from that trigger. You should do that. But in a lot of cases, we can't. And so from there, it's starting to realize how can we take care of ourselves to counteract you know, the stressors, to reduce the stress, to give ourselves more energy, more calm, more patience. And I go through a lot of strategies for taking care of ourselves. Um, well, why don't, wait, then, so why, don't, why don't I stop yeah. you there?
0: What, let's go into a couple of those strategies. Give us some, some hints of what we can do to, to implement some of these things.
1: So a lot of what I talk about in the book, Your listeners have heard before. They know how important it is to get sleep. They know how important it is to exercise, things like that. But there is one strategy that I bet folks aren't thinking about. And I call it single-tasking, or doing just one thing at a time, because what research has found and what I've certainly found in my own life is that multitasking is a major trigger for most folks. Trying to do more than one thing at a time, especially if one of those things is our kids, you know, paying attention to them, increases our stress and makes it far more likely we're going to lose our tempers. And the really classic example that I've certainly been in, and I think any parent has, is You know, it's the evening, so it's the end of a long day. We're all tired. We, the parent, are trying to get dinner on the table, so we're standing over the stove, maybe stirring the noodles. And then our phone is dinging with, you know, text messages or emails or news updates, and we're sort of looking at that. And then we've got one kid over here maybe asking for help with spelling words. Maybe we've got another kid in the bathroom yelling that they need help from there. And we're trying to manage all of this. And then at some point, you know, The kids get in a fight or we spill the noodles or something happens and we just lose it. And a lot of, you know, a lot of times that that's what happens. I mean, that is sort of the immediate thing that causes us to yell at our kids. And so when we can slow down as often as possible and focus on just one thing at a time, that will decrease our stress and anxiety to the point where we can respond in a more thoughtful way to our children instead of snapping at them
0: and you talk about how doing less i mean that's exactly a little going a little bit deeper into what you're saying about having so many different things going on but trying to delegate or to just step back from some things and which is as you mentioned for those of us who are in, in the sandwich generation and we've got the additional burden of all the things that go along with caring for parents how how do you do that
1: Yeah, that's a hard one, and I think that there are a few different strategies. First of all is realizing that, you know, for many of us, especially those folks who had children later in life, which is more and more common, we're used to being super high-functioning, productive folks. You know, we went off into the workforce and we got stuff done. And children and family members make demands on us that are really different from what happens at work. And they're, in some ways, harder and more stressful. And in some ways, you know, a source of great joy and meaning, but still hard and stressful. And so, what I encourage folks to do is remember that while we may be able to do it all, we can't do it all right now. And so, you know, these. Um, maybe volunteer opportunities or extra work opportunities or things you'd like to get done but maybe aren't crucial. Maybe those aren't the things you can have in your life right now while your child is in this particular stage or your parent is needing these particular, you know, this particular help from you. And so you need to put these things off for maybe it's a few weeks, maybe it's a few months, maybe it's a couple years. And know that when you get past this stage of your life, you can come back to it. And that's, you know, that's a hard thing to um, do, especially if some of the things you have to give up, you really care about. Mm-hmm. And so it's about paying attention to and just acknowledging, this is what I can do right now. And it, look, if, if you're talking about something that really is a source of, I don't know, I guess nourishment, something that sort of makes you feel better, calms you down, energizes you, and it's worth it, then hang on to
0: that. Talking with Carla Nomburg was the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to become a cal- Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Carla. I'm Armin Braun. You're listening to Positive Parenting.
2: When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough.
0: Sometimes I, my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits.
2: I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe.
0: But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many.
2: I feel like a fish with no water.
0: Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. In
2: 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa... An eight year old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the US and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the US Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brod If you're just joining us, talking with Carla Nomburg, who's the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids. And again, stuff is spelled S-H dot, dot, dot. Oh, you can figure that one out. I, I want to go back a little bit before we, we move on to talking about offloading some things and, and cutting back. And, and I was listening to you and, and noticing that all the things that you suggested cutting back on were things that we do that have to do with us. And I'm wondering how you feel about cutting back on some of the things that the kids are doing, because that can be tremendously time-consuming, particularly if you've got three different kids who've got three different after-school activities who are heading off in different directions, and, and somebody's got violin lessons and, and soccer and play practice. And you know, can we, without feeling horribly guilty, cut back on some of the stuff we're doing for other people instead of things that we're doing for ourselves?
1: Absolutely, and I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I really encourage parents to limit their kids' after-school activities to two at any given time. And a great way to think about it is the child gets to choose one and the parent gets to choose one. So my daughters are going to be in swim lessons until they're strong enough swimmers because that's what I choose, and they can choose the other one. And there are a few reasons for this. One is our own sanity, right? You know, as you mentioned, it's too much driving all these kids around, having to stay on top of these schedules, and then invariably for any activity you choose, you know, there's the recital or the championship game or whatever it is, it's not just that once a week thing. The other reason to cut back is it'll save you some money, right? And the other reason is that kids really need unstructured time. They need time to be bored, they need time to play on their own or read a book or wander around the yard and in that time they learn a lot about themselves and what they enjoy doing and what they don't and how to deal with the frustration that comes from being a little bored or not having someone else tell you what to do. So it's really important for their growth and development to have that unstructured time. So I think parents can feel really good about not having their child signed up for a million after-school activities and what I would say is that for parents who are saying, you know what, I've given up my volunteer opportunities. I've stepped back from a ton of things. I've got my kids only in one or two activities, and I am still overwhelmed. What I would say is, yes, yes, that is true, and that is real, and this is when we really need to reach out to our support networks. And I go a lot about – I write a lot about that in the book, the different kinds of support networks and how to access them and how to set up carpools and why that's important and why you shouldn't feel guilty about doing that Um, because – You know, we all sort of jokingly say it takes a village, but that's as true as ever. It is not possible to raise your children alone without support and not lose your temper with them. That's just not not the human way.
0: Take us back a little bit to your own personal journey. You've got a chapter in there about how you stopped losing your stuff. What did your life look like before you figured some of this stuff out?
1: Yeah, so uh, soon after my daughters were born, I came down with postpartum anxiety, and I'm a clinical social worker, so you'd think I would be able to diagnose this in myself, but I totally missed it, and what many people don't realize is that irritability is a symptom of anxiety, and I would say that anxiety is incredibly common in the parenting culture these days, and approximately somewhere around 20% of new mothers develop some kind of anxiety after their child is born, so it's super common. And my anxiety was also making it hard for me to sleep. So the combination of the irritability that was sort of a direct result of my anxiety and also just the crankiness that comes with being chronically tired, I was losing my temper with my children all the time. I mean, I was yelling at them on a daily basis. And I would say there are a few things that feel worse than yelling at a toddler. I mean, I felt incredibly guilty and ashamed of this. And so it was really a journey for me to, um, figuring out how to sleep again, getting treatment for my anxiety, and learning, really learning about who I was now as a mother and how I was a different person than I was before I had kids. And so, you know, I wanted the quick fix. I I tell a story in the book about sitting down one night. It had been a really hard night, so I put the girls in front of a Daniel Tiger episode. And here I was. I had a Ph.D. in clinical social work, so I was supposed to be the expert on this. And I literally sat down on my computer and Googled, how do I stop yelling at my kids? And that was really the beginning of this journey for me. And what I can say is I didn't find the answer on Google. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it was it was a long journey.
0: And nobody finds answers to questions like that on Google anyway, right?
1: No, I wish we could. I really wish we could.
0: So what did you find?
1: What I found was um, the first step for me was really figuring out about my sleep. Sleep is so foundational that... When we try to function without sleep, it's kind of like driving around in a car with a flat tire. Um, it's, you know, the, we may still be able to get to where we're going, but the journey is going to be a whole lot bumpier and a whole lot more painful. So the first step for me was getting my sleep under control. And then once that I was sleeping better on a regular basis, I had the energy to exercise and I also had the energy to get myself back into therapy. And working with a therapist around my anxiety was incredibly useful. And then once I started doing that, I was learning a whole lot about myself and what I needed to do to keep my buttons sort of smaller and dimmer and less pushable so that when my kids would come along, being unpredictable and inconsistent and needy and whiny as kids are, I wasn't, you know, my buttons weren't there ready to be pushed. So they were showing up with their fingers, but there wasn't a whole lot for them to push and I could stay calm and patient. And again, this is not 100% of the time. But it's more often than not now that I am not losing my temper with them, whereas before I would have. And so what I know now is that this is an ongoing process. It wasn't like I checked those boxes and fixed the problem. I get in bed at 9.30 every night. I exercise every single day now. I take time alone um, to be with myself and sort of get some quiet time away from people. And I've realized that doing things like this, focusing on one thing at a time, um, for example, so when I'm making dinner, if my daughters who are now 11 and almost 11 and nine years old come to me and say, Mommy, I need help with this, a few years ago I would have said, Sure, I'll help you right now, even though I'm like cutting cucumbers or whatever. And now I'll say, You know what? I'm making dinner. And so I can help you in a couple minutes when I'm done making dinner. And so all of these things combined, knowing that at any moment I do better if I slow down and just focus. Mm-hmm knowing that I need sleep and exercise and time alone and time with friends. All of this makes it far more likely that when these heated moments come, I'm less likely to lose it with my children.
0: Well, it also helps them to understand that they don't have the right or the need to take you away from whatever it is you're doing all the time and can probably lead to them being able to solve some of their problems on their own, which Absolutely. is a, a hidden I mean, benefit there. that is a there. beautiful
1: yeah. side effect. That when I say, hey, I'll help you in five minutes, you know, at least half the time, they go off and figure it out on their own. Whereas if I had said to them, can you figure that out on your own? You know, we get into a power struggle about, no, they can't. Can you help me, mommy, and things like that.
0: Right. And that's, yeah, the the, the lesson that you can do it yourself is a tremendously important one, I think, especially these days when parents are so concerned about their kids' happiness that they jump in and they do their kids' homework and they do everything else for them. Which is just, it's creating problems for the kids. It's creating problems for us, as we've been talking about.
1: You just said something really important there. You said that um, we parents are so concerned about our children's happiness. And I can certainly relate to that. But what I would also say is, it is not our job to make sure our kids are happy. It is, and this is, a, what, once we parents realize this, it's a really uh, powerful way to reduce our own stress. Our job is to do the best we can to help our kids learn to tolerate a variety of emotions, including the unpleasant ones. And this is hard because for most of us, we can't tolerate our own unpleasant emotions. But my job isn't to make my kids happy. My job is to keep them safe. It's to be a source of support for them when they're having difficult times. Um, and it's to help them identify and understand the emotions they're experiencing and knowing that no matter how good or bad they it's going to pass, and another one will come up. And once we parents can let go of this idea that we have to make sure our kids are happy, parenting actually becomes a little easier.
0: And we only have just a minute left, but, what, but I want to get to this. What do you do when you do lose your stuff I mean, relative to yourself and relative to the, the kid whose day you've, you've upset by, by losing it in front of them?
1: Absolutely. So we all lose our tempers with our children. And I've got some strategies in the book for what to do when you get to that moment and you're like in the middle of it or you know what's about to happen and you want to stop it. So that's in the book. But let's talk about what you do afterwards. The first thing I would say is you need to get yourself calmed down. Don't do anything else. Don't try to reengage with your child until you yourself have calmed down. Because if you're still triggered and you go back to them and that interaction goes poorly, you are likely to lose it again.
0: Carla Nomburg, the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. Carla, thanks for joining us. Great to have you.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, don't you know you can't take that baby out in the
0: rain today? And where is her hat? To your own parents. You should take
2: the baby outside every day,
1: even in the rain. To your friends. You have got to
2: get this diaper cream. It is so much better than the one you've been using. When it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated. But really, shouldn't you put
0: the baby's hat back on?
2: A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
0: Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, In one of your columns a while ago, you talked about free speech and the importance of listening to others. I've been having a lot of disagreements lately with my daughter, a college freshman, who demands that I listen respectfully to everything she says, but interrupts and completely dismisses anything I say that she disagrees with, and she frequently accuses me of being racist or homophobic or something else. I want my daughter to feel comfortable standing up for her views, but how can I teach her to be more respectful of mine and others? You've hit upon what I see as one of the biggest challenges we as a society are facing today. At the core of the problem is a fundamental misunderstanding of what free speech in our Constitution's First Amendment, which guarantees it, is and what it's not. Let's start there. The First Amendment, among other things, clearly states that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And the Supreme Court has made it very clear that nearly any kind of speech, especially what we often think of as hate speech, is protected unless it specifically incites violence or illegal acts. In other words, it's precisely the things that we don't want to hear that are protected. College campuses used to be places where students could be exposed to a variety of points of view, where they honed their arguments, and at least occasionally where they learned something that changed their thinking. Sadly, those days are gone. One recent study of faculty in economics, history, journalism, communications, law, and psychology at 40 leading universities around the country found that registered Democrats outnumber registered Republicans by a ratio of 11.5 to 1. As a result, instead of being places where students and faculty can enjoy freedom of speech, college campuses have become places where students and faculty now enjoy freedom from speech. And rather than engage in civil discussions, too many people rush to label anyone they disagree with as racist, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic, or any other discussion-stopping smear they can come up with. Today, nearly 90% of American colleges maintain policies that restrict, or too easily could restrict, student and faculty expression, according to the Foundation for Individual Rights Education at thefire.org. It's no surprise, then, that speakers and guest lecturers who express conservative views are routinely shouted down, intimidated by students and faculty who don't agree with them, or are simply disinvited. A recent study by a UCLA professor found that one in five college students say that it's acceptable to use violence to silence a speaker. Think about that. The big question is, who gets to define what's offensive? Facebook and Twitter, for example, routinely shut down anti-Islamic social media accounts, but they rarely take action against accounts that are openly anti-Semitic or call for the destruction of Israel. Here's my bottom line. While it's important to encourage young people to think critically and express their opinions, it's just as important to encourage them to listen attentively and respect other people's opinions, especially the ones they disagree with. If their or your response to an opposing view is to try to shut it down or attack the person expressing it, they or you aren't mature enough to express their views and they have no right to expect anyone else to listen to them.